HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and it's Monday. And um, this month I'm going to do, and I know it's the end of March, but anyway, for the next four shows and maybe a few more, um, I'm going to be doing a series on innovative new businesses that uh, deal with some of the challenges that we face in feeding our gigantically burgeoning population. And um, they don't all include growing more meat, um, which is kind of what <laughs> what the uh, what the industry at large would like you to believe. In fact, um, we might be growing more meat, but maybe we won't be growing more corn and soybeans to feed them. So in any case, to that end, uh, today we're going to be interviewing Jason Drew uh, from South Africa. Um, Jason is a um, financial services uh, businessman who's built and sold a number of businesses, and he's a very passionate environmentalist. He's a visionary, as you will soon find out, and a capitalist, as you will also soon find out. His books are The Protein Crunch, Civilization on the Brink, and The Story of the Fly and How It Can Save the World. And his most recent endeavor, and what we'll be talking about today, is AgriPro. Protein Technologies. You can look at this on Facebook. You can check out their website. It is a revolutionary concept in feed for industrialized fish and poultry farming. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for coming on today. <laughs> Good afternoon. Oh, yeah, right. It's afternoon for you. Um, so you are in South Africa. Where are you in Cape Town? Right outside of Cape Town? Uh, yeah, just uh, our farms. Well, it's just at the end of uh, our farms, the biggest uh, farm on the planet by headcount. Uh, we have eight and a half billion flies just at the end of Cape Town runway. So, uh, yeah. The swarm, it gives the swarm new meaning, doesn't it? Don't you fear the moment when somehow one of your, you know, cages fails and like two billion flies suddenly emerge? What would happen? Uh, not much, really. I mean, they're good friends. They come back to where the water and the food is and they're, you know, oh. mostly non-invasive species. And there's already as many flies uh, around Cape Town Airport as the environment will support. If there was a, an extra bit of rubbish lying around the floor, there'd be an extra few flies to eat it. 
Well, that's what flies do. They they tidy up rubbish, and you know they're just essential to human existence. I know, fact, and yet they are so. Vil- I'm sorry, well, they are so vilified, though. It's so unfair. <laughs> well, we spent uh, two or three thousand years trying to swap flies, yeah. without really thinking what use they are. Right now, t- so first, uh, I want you to tell us what the use first- they are, because not everybody's going to believe me when I tell them this story, but they might believe you. So, well, how did I this to come go back about? To the beginning and uh, yeah. and, and sort of uh, how how I came around uh, starting off this this business. Well, um, I was in some. Uh, I'd sold most of my sort of what I call industrial revolution businesses towards the end of 2007. And I've just sold our last business, and mm, we retired to go and live on our farm about an hour outside Cape Town. And my wife and I then spent uh, two or three years traveling the world, looking at the world's ecosystems and just spending time understanding environmentalists, which, you know, really were a bit of my bugbear in my previous lives because uh-huh. they always wanted to stop me doing things or not to do this or, you know, have you considered this? And, or make you, know, you pay more it, for that, right. Yeah, 10 years ago, it wasn't, uh, you know, where it's at now, mainstream and obvious and rational. Right. So we spent the world, uh, uh, spent two or three years traveling the world looking at ecosystems, looking at more and more, and particularly at food, uh, everything from food systems in China to how we lost the Grand Banks off Canada and the fish stocks collapsed to how they banned and why they banned fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because they don't like the fishermen, just because there aren't any fish left. Yeah, right. And in Tokyo, standing at the fish market when, you know, the markets were so clear. Uh, and the, you know, a single tuna, and in the first year I investigated it, sold for, uh, I think it was $275,000 for a single fish. Yeah. And just a few years later, a single tuna hit 450000 then 700000 wow. And last year, somebody paid $1.8 million for a single tuna, $1.8 million U.S. dollars. Wow. Yeah. Now, to lots of people, they think, wow, this is odd. Anybody who understands the markets, it's just supply and demand. Yeah. So I got very passionate about the fish and, you know, uh, and our seas and looking at how we're destroying them. And so I spent a fair bit of time in fish farms, too. And it, it, it's a simple ratio called the fish in, fish out. Yeah. Now, what people don't really realize is that you need somewhere between one and a half and eight kilos of fish in to get one kilo of fish out. Yeah. Which you and I eat uh, 60% of the fillets. So... You're much better off really eating the last fish in the sea than you are eating a farmed fish. Yet we continue to farm fish because they're convenient. You don't have to go catch them. You can get 10,000 fish of this size and this weight on a Friday afternoon to to go to your local uh, supermarket. Right. So in in Saudi, I happened to be talking to to them there where they're building a big new fish farm as well and said, you know, where do you get the chickens from? And they said, well, we get a, a, a million chickens a month from a town called Worcester which is not far from my personal farm in, in, in South Africa. So I went back to Worcester, had looked around, found these immense chicken sheds. You only ever see the end of it from the motorway and the highway. Right. And so it doesn't look that big. You go down the side, these are big operations. And, you know, a million chickens uh, a week when you slaughter them produces quarter of a million litres of blood. Yeah. It's like 10 petrol tankers full of, uh, full of blood. And in South Africa, uh, it just gets poured into the ground. Really? So, of course, surrounding, surrounding. well, there's most places in the world it does too. Uh-huh. So surrounding these, uh, uh, this, this dam of blood, there was millions and millions of flies, all buzzing. Uh, buzzing in F minor, by the way. <laughs> I know a lot about flies these days. <laughs> and, 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 and that's when my love affair with a fly started. Indeed. Because I remembered when I was a, a child at my 
grandparents' house in the north of England in Yorkshire. And they had this river outside their, their house. And there was only two ways to catch fish. One was to tie a fly onto the end of a line and cast it onto the water. Yes. The other was to go into one of the fields, find a, uh, a horse poo, break it open and find a little wriggly larvae or a maggot, yeah. stick that in a hook and stick that in the water. Yeah. I thought, hang on a sec, these flies, they just love all this waste. And that's what fish have always eaten. Yeah. And otherwise, would, why would all the fishermen in the world fish with either maggots or with, or with flies? Right. So you can get the radar on the big industrial nets, but no, that's not, uh, that's not fair fishing. Um, and so I think it's about investigating flies. So the flies have a wonderful, wonderful history. So humans, as, uh, as they moved around the world and left Africa, they, they couldn't live without flies. Now, the real reason for they can't live without flies is because as a protein cell breaks down, there's only two things want that protein. One is bacteria, and yeah. the other thing is larvae. That is why larvae emits the most up-to-date antibacterial agent that we have on the planet. It's why Genghis Khan, when he was conquering down out of Mongolia as far as Italy and through the whole of China, would never go into battle without flies. So he'd go into battle with a cartload of uh, rotting vegetables, meat, whatever, in the back of these covered carts. And the flies would come and lay the eggs on the, uh, on, on the rotting material uh -huh. to, to eat it. And he would scrape those eggs off and put them on the wounds of his soldiers. No now, kidding. as those things hatch, they would wriggle about, they would eat the broken cells, they can't eat the damaged cells. You can hold a whole handful of larvae and they can't eat you, they're not sharks. Right. Uh, and they disinfect it at the same time. And uh -huh. that's when I began to understand this is what flies do in nature. And that's why humans and flies always live in parallel. In fact, the only place you're not going to find flies is the South Pole, which is the one place that humans shouldn't be anyway. Yeah, um, and the top of Mount Everest. <laughs> at, yeah, that Mount Everest. Well, actually, they'd find quite high. They've been up to 17,000 feet, the odd fly been discovered. Wow. Anyway, I can talk about a lot about that. But now, flies. wait a minute, Jason. So, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've got to ask you a question. So why is it that, <clears throat> that we object to flies so strenuously and that they've always been known to carry disease? I mean, the fly itself, doesn't the fly itself carry disease? Say it feeds on a piece of has, shit and then comes and sits on your, you know, hamburger. You don't want that. Right? Isn't that bad, or do well, they just? There's two. There's two different things. So, okay. um, like most of nature, we misunderstand. We don't understand what 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 things. You know, most animals on this planet, apart from humans, have a purpose in nature. Yeah. And uh, so the fly, yes, it does. It moves around from one way source to another. But they, in the when they lay their eggs, they then disinfect that waste source. I see. The National Health Service in the UK and. The German Health Service, both by uh, uh, irradiated larvae, to treat things like diabetic ulcerated wounds, where modern technology just doesn't work. Wow. You need to go back to the old ways. So, you know, uh, larvae and, and, and flies in healthcare, uh, they may well provide the next gener generation of antibiotics when penicillin uh, loses its effectiveness. Yeah. They, you know, the flies were the, the, the first animal in space. So. Wow. Uh, NASA, I think, sent up uh, a colony of Spanish fruit flies. Why? Because you can see the whole life cycle, birth, death. Mm. You know, they can see the whole thing in just, in just six weeks. Right. To achieve the same with dogs, you'd have to send up you know, a whole pack of dogs, and the spacecraft would be very messy at the end of that. You'd need some um, flies. <laughs> right? <laughs> You've just proven your point. <laughs> 
So um, the fly was the first animal in space. It was uh, probably the second animal after the human. Now it's genome mapped because mm -hmm. flies are everywhere. And you can find the earliest signs of people wanting to swap flies in the hieroglyphs in Egypt. So you see the pharaohs walking along with somebody carrying a, a sun umbrella and somebody else swatting the flies. Yeah. So they've been around and irritating and interfering with humans for years. But you know, lots of things are irritating until you understand that their purpose and where they fit in. So they've got a wonderful history. So we spent a lot of time um, the last four or five years, really, researching how to make the flies grow together, live together, uh, and, and create the ideal conditions. Now, you can go to most places in the world, and you can get a whole body of science explaining how to kill flies. Yeah. There's nobody in the world mad enough to want to breed <laughs> flies, and certainly not on the scale we do. Uh, <laughs> and so there's very little science about how to keep them alive. Right. So for the last 40 years, you know, we've been... 40, 50 years trying to kill flies, trying to kill pests. Um, yeah. Well, they're only pests because we just don't really understand what they do. But we really thought there'd be a perfect purpose for them. Now, as you know, every uh, fisher person in the world will fish with a fly or, or a maggot on the end of a hook. Yeah. If you think about a chicken in the field, so as we industrialize our chicken farms in the 40s and 50s and 60s and uh, post-World War II, we didn't industrialize their natural source of protein. That's right. Now, if you think... Uh, about a chicken pecking in the field, it's looking for an ant, a larvae, uh, oh, definitely. a worm. It's just what they eat. If chickens were meant to eat fish, which is what we feed them, fish meal, they'd be called seagulls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't so, feed them fish meal yeah, in this country. Only you Brits would do that. That's a really weird thing to do. I mean, no, honestly. It's not quite true. A third of all the fish we take out of our seas is ground up and made into fish meal. Uh, which provides the essential amino acids uh, over and above the amino acids available in vegetable to both fish in fish farms and chicken in chicken farms. No, I did not know that. And we've just got better at masking the take. I guess so, yeah, because I remember making chicken stock in England when I was like 20, and it, tastes, it smelled like I was boiling fish carcasses. It was disgusting. Really nasty. Yeah, uh, so they've got better at masking the taste. <laughs> yeah, Most I'll of the world's chickens use... Uh, you need animal protein. Yeah. Chickens need animal protein to grow. You've got to have hmm. some element out of animal protein. So monogastric animals, things with one stomach, like you and me, yeah. cats and dogs, pigs and uh, chickens and fish, we need animal protein as part of our diet. Right. As humans, we can get away with it because we can just uh, choose and pick and live a vegan diet if we so choose. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you want to get a chicken to slaughter weight in 41 days, you need a whole range of uh, amino acids to make that happen. Sure. And you can't get that just from soya. You can't get it just from uh, vegetable matter mm -hmm. because that's not what chickens are designed to eat. Right. They were designed from day one to peck and eat larvae, peck and eat worms, peck and eat ants. That's where they got their animal protein from. Mm -hmm. So we spent uh, the last five, six years working out how to make all these creatures uh, live together. And they're quite tricky, really, because... They're very, very, very attracted to water. But mm. they're the easiest things in the world to drown because they're hydroscopic. That's why when you uh, have a coffee cup at home, that's where you'll find a fly. Yeah. Because they crawl down the side of your cup. And where the water you think is nice and level in the bottom of your coffee cup, in fact, there's a meniscus, a little curve. Uh -huh. And as they put out their prosposis to, to, to get to the water, their feet touch the, the edge of that curve and they drown because they absorb the water. Wow. And so... That's why you find them drowning in your coffee cups. Yeah, I always not wondered. anywhere else. So that was one of our first challenges. So we uh, bought 
you know, large chests of water in, in our sort of, so just to give you a sort of visual of what a fly farm looks like, in its very simplest form, it's a big cage full of flies, there's a little place for them to lay eggs, somewhere for them to drink, somewhere for them to eat. We extract the eggs from those cages, we then grow them on, on, on waste, well, what people would consider waste, uh-huh. and then when they come out of wriggly larvae, we harvest and dry them, and make them to magmeal, which we call, uh, or maggot meal, magmeal, which is a, a replacement or a natural alternative to fish meal. Right. So that's what a fish farm looks like, uh, sorry, a fly farm looks like in a simple format. So to get them to water, though, it's very difficult because they keep on drowning. You can try wet cloths on the floor and they just drown. It's endless hassle. So we decided uh, to go and buy a microscope and some white coats. We had no idea what to look for, but we thought we'd better get serious about trying to make this happen. All right. So as we were unpacking the microscope with our new white coats on, uh, (laughs) one of the clever sparks in the team suddenly understood why we needed a microscope to water our flies. So what we did is we threw the chips of polystyrene onto the water providing a nestle of, like, icebergs together of bone-dry polystyrene, mm-hmm. which they could stand to get the tiny crevices of water. And that's how we use a, a microscope to, to solve the problem of washing our flies. <laughs> Jason, that's awesome. <laughs> this is even better than I'd hoped, i got to say. These, <laughs> this is really, this is rich, rich fare. I hope everybody is appreciating this as much as I do. I love this story. Yeah, okay, so you then, got... Uh, yeah, okay, keep Then going. we got a bit more serious and, and teamed up with the University of Stellenbosch here in South Africa and particularly right. the Animal Nutrition Department. And we were beginning to make them live together and we are beginning to make them uh, uh, cohabit in the sort of densities and numbers we needed to make it make uh, good business sense. Right. And, you know, it came endless challenges. I mean, the amount of times we nearly gave up is impossible to think of. The amount of times we... We go home to our wives, my brother and myself. We say, yeah, we just blown another, you know, hundred thousand dollars this month and researching this more and more and more, and we still can't make them live together. And our wives would think they're mad. Our children would think they're mad. Yeah. And we just persevered. And eventually, we got to the point where we knew how to do this on a quite a large commercial scale, and that's where we've got to now. So. And so, how? What we really want to do with. Go ahead. Sorry, don't read to interrupt. Go ahead. My 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 fault. So, what you want really want to do is uh, what. So what we really want to do is to, well, let me just explain what we do in Cape Town. Cape Town's our first uh, major factory. So into this factory, uh, a commercial scale factory, we take 100 tonnes of waste today. It's organic waste from the city of Cape Town. Uh This is uh, uneaten food from restaurants. It's uh, waste food from supermarkets that's left over, which we depackage. So it's what we would think of as compost. It's compostable food, basically. Because I was wondering about that, yeah, whether it had to be organic. Does it have to be organic, you know, with a capital O, like the way it would be certified organic? Or does it not matter, you know, what kinds of, uh, say, chemical additives or uh, inter- interventions have taken place through the, the life cycle of that particular foodstuff? That doesn't matter to your flies? It doesn't no, have an impact on their It doesn't larva. matter particularly. You want to avoid some things like heavy right. metals and other bits and pieces. But right. it's generally organic material uh, that's food type stuff. I mean, you know, my right. view is that there's no such thing as waste. There's just stuff in the wrong place. Right. <laughs> and yeah. all we do is take the stuff that's in the wrong place and we take it to our factory, which is the right place. Yeah. And we engage in a process of, of nutrient recycling. Yeah. We turn those nutrients that were very expensive to make back into natural nutrients that other things want to eat. Yeah. That's what nature's been doing for 100 million years. You yeah. know, we think we're clever. We just copied Mother Nature and, and <laughs> learned how to make a buck out of doing it. 
Yeah, well, that's um, where the capitalism part comes in, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, in our last facts, we're taking 100 tons a day uh, of that. We have 8.5 billion flies. We make 24 tons of larvae a day. Mm. We keep two tons of larvae back to go into pupation. So that's right. when they deform a shell around them and they reassemble their proteins in the most extraordinary manner to become a fly. Yeah. And we harvest them just before they do that. Uh-huh. We keep two tons back to do that. And then we put them through a process where we dry them and sift them out from the residue, which is compost. Yeah. And then we dry those larvae. Uh, and we squeeze them to extract the oils, which are uh, fatty acid-rich and omega-3 and lipid. So they're good oils. Yeah. No, I I looked at the nutritional profile. It was amazing. Yeah. So we separate the oils because it improves the shelf life, uh, and we extrude the oils because they're more useful in other parts of our complex food process Mm -hmm. than just in feeding them to to chickens. And then we sell those products we sold a third of our output uh, before finishing the factory to a uh, fish mill uh, feed producer, a third to a uh, chicken farming operation, uh-huh. and one third to a pet food manufacturer. Cool. Because we wanted to prove the market with uh, with three different marketplaces. Sure. We're already building our second factory, which is 100, uh, 150% of that, so it's, it's pushing. Well, in fact, we can scale this up to 200 tonnes a day. Wow. Using some interesting new technology to extract the organic waste from general household waste. And, yeah, so it's it's quite an exciting thing. We've also uh, licensed our first plants into various parts of the world, to North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. And we think that within 15 years from now, you will consider it as normal to recycle your waste nutrients as today you consider it normal to recycle your plastic tin or glass right and you can use organic waste for just straight composting but no plants don't need protein so we extract the proteins from those uh, composted materials also what we need to do is we need to work out how on earth we're going to feed nine billion people and we need to do that before the price of food goes up to such a degree that causes social unrest it causes the change we've seen uh, I argue that the increasing food prices in 2007, 8, had as much to do with the financial collapse as anything else. As people had the food prices going up 15%, if you don't have much disposable income, uh, and normal inflation is still 1.5% because your price of your iPads come down or your uh, Chrysler car, uh, and you've got a choice between buying food and paying your bills, uh, your credit card, people chose food. Yeah. And I think there's a lot more understanding about the food price inflation and what it contributes to hardship amongst the poor uh, than we really take uh, credit for. So that's what we want to do. We, I think uh, we've seen the price of fish meal go up from six, $700 a ton average to $1,400 a ton average to 2500 or pushing $2,200 a mm. ton. And, you know, if we don't get some uh, change to that ever-increasing price, which more people same amount of seas, the same amount of fish, if, if not less fish, uh, you know, we're going to get into problems of food, food price escalation. Yeah. You know, people go into restaurants and they say, oh, this is on the, the sappy list, this is a green, a, a red fish, you can't eat that, and this is uh, okay. It'd be a bit like going to a steakhouse and saying, sir, there's some wonderful uh, 
giraffe on the menu today, but there's no panda. I'm afraid that's on the red list. <laughs> uh, but you can have some kudu. Right. I mean, <laughs> right. This is the world we're living in. We're grading the things we can eat according to how endangered they are. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, polar bears dead off the menu. You know, it's just yeah. <laughs> it's a bit weird about the seas as well. Yeah, no, I, I think I love this for um, fish farming. I think it's brilliant. And I, I know of one other company that has investigated and successfully introduced a different type of fish food uh, based on yeast. Um, that's for Lasso in Chile, if you haven't, uh, Chile, if you have not uh, looked into their yeah. their thing. But they, they I think they have a very cool idea as well. It'd be interesting to do like a sort of cost-based analysis that compared the two. Um, I, but I, I'm ha- head over heels in love with your fly farm. So, um, you know, I, I go for that any time. Um, fortunately, I don't need a lot of fish. So we, we, really... <laughs> we, 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 need, uh, pl- we need plenty of innovation. You know, this is, this yeah. is a big, big problem. It is a huge it's problem. It's a $20 billion opportunity. Um, you know, uh, we need lots of information and may the, uh, may the best person win. And my bet that that is Mother Nature. And that's why we backed her and copying her, yes. and her idea for recycling waste into food. Well, the other thing about your product is um, recently in the press, uh, The Guardian, for instance, ran a six-part series on slave trading or slave labor in uh, fish farming in Southeast Asia. And I'm sure you saw that when you were doing your travels. Um, mm. And if you haven't seen that those, that series, I, I strongly recommend it. But basically, um, you know, the, the Thai, especially the Thai uh, fish farming industry is predicated on the use of slave labor to catch those feed fish in order to feed the shrimp farms and other fish farms within, you know, in the interior. So um, this would take that right out of the equation. And that brings me to another question, which is, um, do you see your product? I mean, I'm thinking about like the guys who do this kind of fish farming work, um, you know, finding these fish for fish meal or and or the people who produce soy and corn, which are the two major feedstuffs for um, industrial livestock, at least for pigs and chickens. Um do you see like push back from these guys or do you see them saying, whoa, maybe I want to get involved here. Maybe I need to invest in this or somehow, you know, like what is the response to the people who are currently producing the feedstuffs that are already used in industrial ag? Um, and, and what I kind think, of, I think... go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. I, I think many of the industrial feed farmers are understanding that we live in an increasingly resource constrained world. Mm-hmm. And if we are not to be defined by that constraint, then we need to do things differently. Mm. And that, you know, we're at the beginning of the sustainability revolution. Whole old industries will disappear. Whole new industries will emerge. And we need to change with the times. You know, mm. if you'd sat there and stuck with your old uh, uh, bell handset, you know, connected to hard wires, you'd still be sitting there today without your iPads and your ice cream. I mean, you know, we need to get on with these things. Otherwise, it's a bit like a sort of cave people sitting in the caves, uh, too frightened to light the fire, and get warm because they think they might set fire to something. Yeah. Now we've just got to get on and accept some modern technologies from fire to, uh, uh, to the internet and everything else. And in our food industry, uh, I think modern probably means back to nature. So improving the qualities of our soils, improving yes. the quality of our feedstocks, and more natural and less unnatural. Yeah. And I think that's where... That's where the future is. It's almost back to the future, really. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And with that, I must stop you because we do need to do a station uh, break and a sponsor drop now. But, uh, you know, this is just, <laughs> like I said, better than my wildest dreams. Um, so we'll be right back with Jason Drew from Agri- Agri-Protein Technologies in South Africa. Stay tuned for more of this fascinating interview.
Since 2001, Heritage Foods USA has sold pasture-raised, antibiotic-free heritage meats to restaurants and homes around the country. Our farmers raise their animals with care using traditional methods guaranteed to produce the very best-tasting meat. Our pork breeds include Berkshire, Red Wattle, Duroc, Gloucester Old Spot, Large Black, and Tamworth, and our beef comes from Piedmontese, Angus Akiyushi, Belgian Blue, Highland, Simmental, and Belted Galloway cattle. We also carry a rotation of 24 rare breeds of heritage chicken, seasonal specialties like lamb, goat, geese, and of course, heritage turkeys. Visit us online at www.heritagefoodsusa.com or give us a call at 718-389-0985 to place your order today. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'm talking today with Jason Drew from uh, Cape Town, South Africa. He is one of the uh, innovators behind AgriProtein Technologies, a closed-loop system of uh, reducing waste and at the same time creating feed for uh, fish and poultry farming on an industrial scale. So, Jason, <clears throat> to go back for a second to um, your product, uh, Mag, we haven't even described it. Let's let's back up for just a second and talk for a minute about your three products that you are currently producing, Mag Meal, Mag Oil, and Mag Soil. Is that right? Yeah. So, so what are these? And what, how again, they- to, go back to, to, to go back to the simplest process, we have a large cage full of flies. Right. We extract the eggs from those. Uh, depending on species, uh, one kilo of eggs will grow into mm, 400 kilos of protein in about 72 hours. Amazing. So we take the eggs out and we feed those on waste nutrients. And those waste nutrients come from shopping malls, from restaurants, from hotels, from food producers, all sorts of things. Right. Um, and we then put those through a process. So we take the larvae and we put them through a sifting machine to separate out the, uh, the soil residue, the compost, which was your food that has been uh, eaten through and uh, digested by the fly larvae, much like worm, uh, yeah. worm castings. Similar sort of thing. And that's very high in uh, nitrogen, high in phosphates, high in potassium. And we call that mag soil. Okay. That's what it is. It comes from maggots. Uh, it's the soil that comes out through them and has passed through their single stomach. And right. It's a fantastic uh, garden, and it's better than compost. It's somewhere pushing fertilizer because if you think about it, you know, a farmer sticks a load of NPK, uh, yeah. nitrogen phosphate, potassium onto his soils, and where does it go? It doesn't disappear. It goes into the plants. Right. Now, if you just take the bits out of a plant that an animal wants, which is not much of the nitrogen and not much of the other two elements, you end up with uh, that back in the compost where you put it in the first place. Mm. That's why I just love these sort of these closed loops. Yeah. And we then take those larvae and we dry them. Um, we dry them, you know, reasonably slowly so we don't denature the protein. And then we squish them. Uh-huh. And we squish them to take the oil out. Yeah. And when we take the oil out, that's what we call mag oil. Right. And that is uh, rich in all sorts of uh, everything from omegas to it's a fatty acid oil. Uh, and we sell that separately into the food industry, uh, animal feed industry. Uh-huh. Um, and it's useful in particular for coating pet and dog food, uh, making the pellets more palatable because it's tasty. Uh-huh. Uh, particularly if you're Have a you tried dog. it? Um, 
I have three. I've eaten everything. So we had larvae pizza at our uh, away day the other day with the team. Excellent. Great. They just taste a bit like pistachio nuts. They're just really good. Well, you know, a third of the. Uh, well, I'll come on to explain that in two seconds. But so then the um, mag meal, as we call it, is just maggot meal. It's like fish yeah. meal, but made from maggots. It's fifty-five percent protein by com- content. It's an animal protein, so it has the full range of amino acids right. that promote growth in uh, the target species. Uh, and that's what we do. So that's in its very simple form. The mag soil, the mag oil, and the mag oil right. are the three things we make. It's all beautiful and stuff. a whole list of things that it can be used in. things we want to make in the future. Mm-hmm. From, Such... from harvesting the enzymes uh, within the larvae that uh, are the antibacterial element mm. uh, to, to look at all that. But that's all down the line. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Mother Nature knows it works. Genghis Khan knew it works on his soldiers. That was a fair old exchange between Napoleon and his Surgeon General, mm. saying that he'd noticed that uh, soldiers that were shot in the morning uh, and the left on the field for the rest of the day and been covered in flies did much better than those picked up at the end of the day when they'd been shot and, uh, uh, and washed with dirty water, mm. and suggesting that uh, Napoleon, Napoleon is a great writer, he used to write everything down, it's why you can find these historic records, mm. suggesting that uh, we ought to use um, flies on the wounds of our soldiers and let them settle. Napoleon said, no, 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 if the British ever found this out, uh, our army would uh, go into a breakdown. Uh, perhaps if he hadn't allowed his Surgeon General to have his way, there might have been a different outcome at Waterloo, because he'd have better, healthier soldiers mm. with less wounds. But anyway, that's how the fly changed history, or could have done if they paid attention to Mother Nature. Yeah. So those are our three products. Um, you know, we, as I said, they, they just taste... A third of our... Uh, a third of the world eats... Insects anyway. So yeah. Right across the world, there's a culture of eating crickets, of eating all sorts of insects. Oh, yeah, mealworms. Thailand to, Absolutely. To well. And actually, the Western world is probably the biggest consumer of insects, too. We just don't know it. Mm. So in the Western world, we love the insects of the seas. We love shrimp. We love prawns. We love mm. all these sort of things, which are just the insects of the seas. Uh, and what we haven't and we've forgotten about is how our ancestors grew up on the insects of the land. Yeah. before they even knew the insects of the seas existed. So, you know, we do eat insects. We just eat sea, seaborne insects. Well, in this uh, country... Those, I describe things that, that forage uh, and, and mm-hmm. eat uh, detritus at the bottom of the sea, which is exactly right. what right. Uh, shrimps and lobsters do. Yeah. But in this country, there is a growing business. <clears throat> in fact, one of my next innovation, you know, interviews is going to be with a guy who's uh, running tiny farms, which is a cricket industry. Um, they're consultants, actually, yeah. to people who want to grow more crickets because crickets are actually becoming more and more acceptable as a protein source in this country. People are getting over that ick factor. I don't think they're going to get over the maggot ick factor quite so quickly, But which is why I was asking you if you eat them. Because, um, I mean, I don't think other... I have never heard of other um, you know, insect-eating populations necessarily eating maggots. Um, but, you know, I'm willing to be corrected. And, uh, and do you well, see mag, like mag oil, is that something that the supplement industry would pick up and start selling instead of fish oil? We'd eat mag oil? Well, I think there's two, two different things in that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, chicken and fish have eaten larvae for hundreds of millions of years. Right. So we're not, we don't see this really as a, as a sort of, as a natural alternative to, uh, the crickets or to, to other insects meals, except for perhaps Bear Grylls or somebody when he's trekking through the Arctic and finds, you know, some uh, dead thing with covered in, in maggots. Right. But we see this more as a, as a in, in, for industrial animal feeding. Mm-hmm. I think that people are getting more adventurous that eating crickets or 
scorpions covered in gold leaf and all those sort of things uh, as you can get at some of the pop-up insect restaurants around the world. I think we'll eat more insects, and I don't think it's a bad thing. You know, as early humans, that's what we ate. Yeah. And it isn't that long ago. Right. Um, and so it's not unnatural, it's natural. Yeah. And I'm very excited about the potential for increasing our consumption of, uh, of crickets. You were mentioning about tiny farms. I think you know, all this sort of stuff is, is great innovation. There's a lot less CO2 emissions, a lot less damage done by eating and farming crickets than, uh, than, than, than cows. Oh, absolutely. Um, and they all have a place in the food chain for, for those different consumers and different tastes and different outlooks on life. But we need to just embrace everything. We need to embrace more of the natural world. And, and this is the crickets and the insect revolution is just part of it. Yeah. But the particular thing that we can do that you can't do in farming crickets is we can take waste that really nobody else wants. Right. Uh, we can take, you know, rotting food. We can take stuff that needs to be disinfected first. And that's what... Uh, the fly species we use have always done. That's what they do. That's right. what they do in the wild. That's why, you know, when a, a buck dies in the bush and the flies settle on it, that's what they do. They disinfect it and consume it and recycle those proteins uh, into, or recycle those nutrients into a usable form of protein by other parts of nature. Right. So if you think about, uh, you know, anything that is organic material decaying, uh, uh, bear droppings in the woods, then that's exactly what the flies are for. They stop it being taken over by bacteria. They stop it um, becoming uh, just a bacteria fest right. by allowing the flies to disinfect it and get on and do what nature does, which is recycle those nutrients into usable things. You know, the fly then flies off, flies over one of your beautiful rivers. A trout leaps out of that river and eats the fly. Yeah. That's just the cycle of nature. Yeah. And now, so yeah. that's all we do. Now, you use three specific uh, breed of flies, right? How come you don't use just a regular house fly? What, what is the difference between different species of fly or different, uh, you know, whatever? I don't know how to even call that. What is it? A different, um, not a species, but it's... Species, a, yeah. It's, 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 a, it's like, you know, people say there are horses for courses and there are flies for waste. Right. And different types of... That's, that's why if you watch CSI, um, which I was doing one day several years ago, and I thought, hmm, bet these guys know a lot about flies. We ended up hiring... Uh, a forensic entomologist from the British Police Force to come and join us and help us with our fly research. Oh, cool. <laughs> until you end the stories. So um, a forensic entomologist will tell you that, you know, how they date a human corpse that's dead in the woods or something is by working out which flies have been at it when. Ah. The reason is they want different things. And so those three fly populations between them add up to what we call an omnivore. Uh-huh. So some will eat different bits, some will eat different things in, in more quantities and profusion. So we match flies to available waste in the same way that you put a horse on a horse track that it's going to run well on. I understand. And that's exactly what we do. So we just, if we have more uh, meat waste, so from slaughterhouse waste, we use something called a chloropagi, which I think is probably more commonly known as a blue bottle or a green bottle. Uh-huh. If we're using more domestic waste, we'd use a Oscar domestica, which is a common house fly. And for different types of things, we use the black soldier fly, which is uh, native to North America, prevalent all over the world. And, yeah, so it's just about horses for horses and flies for waste, and matching them so yeah. that we can consume the whole... Um, spectrum of organic material available to us in any particular location. Right. Now, you, I mean, one of the things that um, I, when I was reading through the material you sent me is, um, I, you know, I just wanted to ask, like, what kind of challenges 
do you face in terms of expanding this? Because you did mention something about, um, you know, the EU doesn't really have uh, the legal structure to allow you to build this kind of a farm there because I'm not sure why, but evidently there are different regulations and rules about raising uh, insects for, for animal feed. Um, so tell me about some of those challenges. Like, is that are, are those uh, legislative issues being resolved? Sorry, and, and you mentioned expanding into quickly. North America, so I want to hear about that. So I, th- I think there's two or three different things. So for including uh, larvae that are unprocessed or untreated, there are no uh, regulations preventing that in the UK. How uh-huh. can you prevent a fly? Uh, how can you prevent a trout leaping out of a stream and uh, having a go at a fly? Right. Uh, you're going to throw a book of rules at it and say no more flies until you've read this book. <laughs> right. uh, it's not going to work. So at that end of the scale, it's permitted because you can't ban natural things. Yeah. Uh, at the mid-scale, um, if you want to put them into pet foods, that's okay as well. Uh-huh. And uh, the only difficulty in Europe comes in where you want to include them in the human food chain. Right. But because Europe had the issues with BSE and all these sorts of things right. uh, by reusing animals, uh, feeding them to each other, and, in the, right. and those ending up in the animal food chain and potential uh, risk for the human food chain. But around the world, uh, there is enabling legislation, as I call it, happening at an extraordinary rate of knots. Um, it's beginning in the States. It's certainly, I think, going to happen in Europe within the next 24 months or so. Uh-huh. Because what you're doing is enabling a natural process. Right. And that's a good thing to do. And I think Europe, like everywhere else, faces the problem of what do we do with our rubbish? We, we bury our, our waste nutrients in the ground. Yeah, we, we add down. to the greenhouse the gas issue. Is bacteria, <laughs> and that pollutes yeah. the groundwater. Right. So we're into this sort of process of just getting a bit more realistic. I don't think it's that insects were never, uh, they were never specifically banned. They were never enabled because when they wrote the legislation governing food safety, mm-hmm. nobody ever thought that just 15 or 20 years later, right. uh, people would be seriously considering uh, making a profit out of farming insects. Right. Right. Now, um, I did want to clarify one thing. So this goes into currently, you know, you're, uh, it's being sold for fish fish farming and for poultry. What about other domesticated species? Would it work for a pig, for instance? Obviously not for would. ruminants, um, but for single but we, stomachs. So we, we have for monogastric animals. Yeah, it, works, it works well for pigs. Uh-huh. Pigs will eat uh, pretty much anything. But in order to get your maximum value for it, it's about targeting the proteins and the amino acid profile you have available to the life stages of the animals. Uh-huh. So, you know, fingling fish that's uh, just as big as your little finger right. uh, needs much more protein in its diet. It would be at the bottom of a river somewhere looking for eggs of other species of fish or just looking for eggs to get the protein in. Right. Um, as they get bigger, they, they like a different diet. I see. So for us, it's about extracting the maximum value from our products, uh, which we are getting better at. Uh-huh. And in the... It is, it is quite obvious, really, that both fish and chickens have always eaten these things. Yes. You know, that's why birds flying over a field will stop down next to a carcass, even if they're not meat-eating animals. Right. You know, they might stop at a, a pile of dung with some larvae on it, and they will peck at the larvae. That's what they've always done. Yeah. So for me, in trying to create a, a business at scale, go for the place of the least resistance. Go for where mm-hmm. it's obvious, where you can explain right. to people, this is what chickens... Now, explain about the fish, and people get it. So... It's much easier to talk to a fish farmer and a chicken farmer than a pig farmer. Sure. Of course, we like to in time, but low-hanging fruit is always a way to go. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I was just curious. Low-hanging low larvae in this case. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, only because, you know, we expend so much uh, resources on growing uh, grain in order to feed both uh, chickens and pigs. Um, and so that I was just, you know, speculating on whether or not this would be yet another, um, you know, species that would thrive on at least a partial diet of this particular product. Well, unfortunately, Jason, we have to like sort of wrap this up here. So I want you to tell people we didn't get to talk about um, an environmental capitalist, which is how you describe yourself. Let's take like one minute to say, what does that mean? You're an environmental capitalist. Let's go back to that innovation well, moment there. In, 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 in the, during the Industrial Revolution, you had to be either an environmentalist or a capitalist, yeah? yeah. And the two were uh, bitterly opposed. The Industrial Revolution's over. We're now in the Sustainability Revolution. Right. During the Sustainability Revolution, if you're uh, uh, a business person who doesn't accept that you are subservient to the environment, your business will fail and you will fail your stakeholders. Yeah. If you're an environmentalist who has a particular environmental cause, who doesn't understand the needs of business, you will never get your cause funded. And, you know, when I go into businesses, it's not to go and uh, earn a salary. It's to create a business to earn some capital. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I am. So I'm a capitalist. I want to accumulate capital. And as we get a bit more honest about the future, the challenges we face and the things we have to do, let's just be honest about what we are. Now, nobody's ever really left a capitalist country and gone to a communist country. <laughs> Yet there are, 140, there are 142 communist parties around the world. Has yeah. anybody got the guts to say, stand up and say, I'm a capitalist? No. Will more people in the future? I think so, yes, because we need to get peaceful about what we are. Right, right. Well, uh, on that note, which I, I think is brilliant, um, let us uh, talk about how people can learn more about agroprotein technologies. You have a website. You've got a great Facebook page. Whoever is doing your social media is doing a fantastic job. I mean, I spent at least 30 minutes this morning going through your Facebook page. You had so many interesting articles posted. It was excellent. Great. So we have uh, our agroprotein website. We will open a North American website very shortly Great. Uh, as our licensees uh, develop. Uh, you can read more about it in the story of the fly and how it could save the world. Yes, now um, available. Read my... Yes, it is. It's, uh, it's on Amazon. Um, you can just type in the story of the fly and Jason Drew and you'll get there. You'll find my first book there, The Protein Crunch, which was about how I saw the world getting to a difficult point of needing more protein and not enough seas to produce it, not enough lands and waters. It looks at it from a very business-like perspective, because I'm a businessman. Right. So I do a lot of, uh, uh, not only building our businesses around the world, but I also do a fair bit of speaking around the world. I have a personal mission to get face-to-face with 10,000 people a year, which I do. Uh, because when people hear the story, they get inspired about what is possible in the future. Just because things are changing, we have environmental challenges, doesn't mean we have to go and hide and give up business and all wear uh, woad coats. Yeah, we can still be business people, proud of it, and make a profit by fixing the future. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, I think you're a genius, dude. I love this story. I look forward to talking to you in the future and hearing more about how the business is expanding and unfolding. And in the meantime, I thank you so much for your time today on the phone. This has really been a lot of fun. And uh, folks, do go go to Amazon, buy the book, The Story of the Fly and How It Will Save the World. Uh, I couldn't get it until Jason got it onto Amazon U- USA. It was only on UK that wasn't uh, happening for me. But now we can. I'm going to be ordering it today and reading it, and I hope you all will too. Um, Thanks again to my sponsor, Heritage Foods USA. I'm sure that um, those heritage turkeys would love your larvae, your mag meal. Um, oh, sure they would. <laughs> and thanks to my engineer. So long, folks. We'll see you I next week. I think they gobble them up. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> Good one, Jason. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Buddy.